Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. We have a very special podcast for you this week. It's part one of Best of the Best, where we share the winning stories and behind-the-scenes scoop from this year's Third Coast Richard H. Treehouse Foundation competition. And if it's Best of the Best season, that means the holidays are coming. So why not get the podcast lover in your life something nice from the Third Coast shop? We've just added new t-shirts, warm winter hats, and a gorgeous new poster from artist Corinne Mucha. While you're in our shop, why not consider making a donation during our end-of-the-year fundraiser? Your support allows us to continue to celebrate the best audio of the year and bring you this podcast. At thirdcoastfestival.org, you'll find a link to our shop, or click on the bright red box with the pigeon sat on it to make a donation. And many, many, many thanks for your contributions, past and future. Alright, all sorted on my end. Now, here's this week's podcast of Best of the Best. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. What a story there is, the climax to all the hopes and ambitions of months of preparation. Today we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But before we share these amazing stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio stories. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find and share them in a variety of ways. On the radio, the internet, at live listening events, we also host an international competition to honor all of the wonderful work our medium has to offer and the talented producers who create it. Movies have the Oscars and Sundance, music has the Grammys, but for documentary radio, there is really just one, and that pushes producers and reporters to do their best work, and that is the Third Coast International Audio Festival. That was Roman Mars of the podcast 99% Invisible, host of the 2014 Third Coast Awards Celebration. Each year, we ask the best and the brightest in public radio and beyond to take a little time out of their busy schedules to be our judges. And let me tell you, it is no easy task. This year, 
420 entries poured into the competition from 11 different countries, including Italy, Singapore, and Australia. 12 won top honors. On this special broadcast, we bring you our competition's winning stories and behind-the-scenes tales from the producers of this remarkable work. So stay with us for the next hour of this year's Best of the Best. Let's begin with our Best New Artist Award. This prize goes to a reporter or documentarian who's been working in the field for two years or less. Someone whose creativity and ingenuity perk up our ears and alert us to a new voice in town. This year, the award goes to independent producer Annie McEwen from Newfoundland, Canada. Her winning story blends the literal and the figurative into an arresting tale of love and caution. Our judges said, it's the kind of piece that demands your attention. This is radio at its most suggestive, moody, atmospheric, even literary. Let's listen to the broadcast debut of Here I Am and Here Be Danger. Foghorns are interesting things, really, in phenomena, in that they aren't saying, come here. They're saying, I care about you, and go away. You're going to crash upon the rocks. You're going in on shoals. You're going somewhere where you're likely to fall into harm. I think on the subject of love... I'm just sick of thinking about it. doesn't make any sense to me. And, yeah, I just really don't want to talk about it. Like, really, really don't want to talk about it. Just the idea of two people being in love. I don't know. Maybe it's just not meant for everyone. I was in my early 20s, I thought if two people loved each other, that was all you needed in life. But you can, you can love each other and it can be not good and not right and not working and just not possible. Now Wash was a young woman who met her true love. And he loved her as much as she loved him. But it happened that he was a fisherman, and he was lost at sea, and she was heartbroken. He was my first kiss, my first lover, my first everything. Foghorn noises are low-frequency noises. And so you get that low moan, and you can feel that shiver. If you're close enough to it, you can, your body picks up those vibrations, right? So it's a, not only a hearing, you know, it can be a feeling kind of situation as well. The fact that we worked together and that he was in a relationship, just I didn't admit to myself that maybe I actually did have feelings for him. And then I found out that he was separating he was he was leaving his um relationship and that was the first time that i knew 
oh my god, I want to, I like, I want to be with him. I want, I very much want to be with him. And I told him. There was a gathering at his house, and he was busy. He was preparing the food, he was hosting people, getting people's drinks. And I was cutting myself short saying, you know, I know you're busy. Like, I realize that you're, you have all these things to, to tend to. And he just said, I have all the time in the world. There were a few months of a kind of, okay, maybe we're going to be together, maybe these feelings are actually going to amount to a kind of romantic relationship. But it was never straightforward. It was always, maybe this is not a good idea. Maybe this is not a good time. When the foghorn sounds, it's in a time when you're of limited visibility, and it is a a situation where you're heading into danger. Then he sends me a message saying that he's going to try to return to his family and try to make things work, and that he was sorry he couldn't have been stronger. Right, and so there you are groping, and you're in in this darkness, and this thing is pushing you away, and it's doing it in a funny kind of way because it says, I want you to be safe. So leave me alone. Go away from me. I don't even know how I reacted at the time. I may be a bit in disbelief. It is saying, here I am and here be danger for you. That was an excerpt from Here I Am and Here Be Danger by Annie McEwen winner of the 2014 Third Coast Best New Artist Award. These days, Annie is an associate producer at Battery Radio in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Radio doesn't just entertain and inform. It can also move people to action. This year, the Third Coast Radio Impact Award goes to a story that was produced with sensitivity about a difficult and taboo subject. In this remarkable documentary, a young man named Adam discovers at a very early age that he's sexually attracted to children. Though Adam never touched a child, he felt isolated and alone and viewed images of child pornography online. Then one day, he saw a video that he found so disturbing, he decided he had to find help. Our judges said this story opens the door into a world of profound isolation and moral struggle. Here's an excerpt from Help Wanted, reported by Luke Malone. A note before we start, Adam is not his real name, and in this story, both his voice and his mother's have been altered. He says he felt like a monster for having viewed the videos, but also just for having the attractions. Some days, he thought about killing himself. He didn't know what else to do. He was 16. He wanted to talk to someone. So he started with a cautious letter to his mum. Dear Mummy, it begins. 
I am writing this letter to you as I cannot bring myself to say what I need to say to you, to your face. It would simply be too painful for me. I am always overshadowed with feelings of depression, guilt and shame. I am really sick and tired of covering these feelings up. I want you to let me see a psychologist. I understand that you probably have a lot to ask me, but I need some time to get my head wrapped around things. Love, Adam. He didn't explain the source of the problem, and his mother never asked. Instead, she made him an appointment at a local therapist for a week or so later. I remember it was a Friday morning, uh, very early in the day I was her first patient. Um, We got there even before she got there, and, you know, I was... I was just very nervous, you know, I knew exactly what was coming. I'd known for so long, you know, that I was going to walk in there and, you know, what I was going to say. Um, And, you know, I'd I'd rehearsed it in my head. And what was this script you'd been playing over and over in your head? I'm a pedophile and I'm addicted to child pornography. And, you know, I I remember I I walked in there and, you know, we started talking. and then, you know, she kind of said, you know, so what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm, I'm very anxious. And, you know, she said, well, why are you anxious? Uh, and, you know, my, my heart was beating. I'd never been so uh, so terrified in my life. Um, but, you know, I, I uttered the words. I said, you know, well, this is, this is difficult to say, uh, but I'm a pedophile and I'm addicted to child pornography. And... I saw kind of a look of horror on her face, and she asked me to repeat that. She she must have thought that she misheard me, you know, for something like that. But, you know, I repeated it. Then, you know, immediately uh, she went from being, you know, this very nice, gentle person to very harsh and critical. What did she say to you? Well, she, she raised her voice, um, telling me, you know, like, this isn't okay. And, you know, we, we talked... We talked about it a bit. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, at that point I'd been, I think, 11 weeks uh, clean of uh, child pornography. But, you know, I was, one, I, I was just terrified, um, you know, the whole time. And, uh, you know, I remember she tried, you know, talking with me about um, about why why I have these attractions. And, um, and uh, you know, she was she was obviously convinced, you know, that, well, I, I had trouble talking with people my own age, so, you know, I was, I felt less judged by younger kids, and that's why I was interested in them. Um, and that's, you know, it's apparently um, a very common thing for, uh, for you know, therapists who aren't at all trained in this, you know, area to, to think. So she um, didn't even believe that you were a pedophile, just that you couldn't kind of make it with kids your own age, essentially, yeah? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. And what did you say to her in response? Oh, well, you know, I, I disagreed. I said, you know, no, I, I I really firmly believe that's not the case, you know. Um, I know what I'm attracted to, and it's not like I'm, you know, I, I had friends. It's not like I didn't have a single friend. You know, I said, look, you know, these, these attractions are, you know, more intense than uh, they are towards any adult I, you know, I've ever met or seen. And I'm really confident that it's not just you know, being scared to talk to people my own age. Was it kind of weird or frustrating kind of disclosing this massive thing about yourself and then having to kind of just really drive it on home and prove it to her? Yeah, it was definitely, um, it was annoying. Um, But, you know, I'll I'll tell you that the feeling that uh, overcame me most the whole time 
was uh, that I was being judged. Um, that, that's definitely what I felt most when I left later. Um, you know, I considered writing an email to her apologizing for dropping, you know, such a bombshell uh, on her. And I saw her again. And what happened in that second session? So she was a little calmer. You know, she'd obviously had some time to think about it. She basically told me, you know, pretty much instantly, you know, that she couldn't help me. Um, and, you know, she said that she'd looked around, but she couldn't really, you know, find much. Um, and then, you know, within a few minutes, she asked um, how I'd feel if she told my mother, you know, about what was going on. So, you know, first, uh, you know, my, my heart obviously started beating much faster, and, you know, I, I became incredibly anxious. And, um, you know, I said, uh, you know, I, I, I really, I, I don't want to do that. So she, uh, you know, she left the room for a minute and then came back in with my mother. And I sat down and... The first thing that I recall the therapist saying is, we've got a problem. This is Adam's mum. Her voice has also been altered. The therapist looked at me, and I, I can't remember her exact words, but it was something like... Adam is uh, addicted to pornography. And then she paused for a little bit, and then she said, you know, a very specific type of pornography... Um, and, you know, she said it's child pornography. And she continued to say that she couldn't see him. We then talked a little bit, not details, about what had been going on. Um, and Adam did not contribute at all. He sat there just shaking and looking at the floor. And I do remember that she then turned to Adam and said, How do you feel? And he said, I feel like I'm going to throw up. You know, my mother, I'm sure, reacted the, the best I really could have hoped for. Um, you know, she kind of put her arm on my shoulder and, you know, squeezed a little bit. And, you know, she seemed to be supportive. I'm sure she was in shock and probably kind of horrified. But, you know, at least she was able to hide that. And the, the fact that she was able to do that... Um, it, it meant so much to me. And I looked at him, although he wouldn't give me eye contact. I looked at him and I said, Adam, we're going to help with this. Whatever it is, we can help with it. And don't worry, I'm with you. That was an excerpt from Help Wanted, reported by Luke Malone and produced by Robin Simeon for This American Life. Help Wanted won the 2014 Third Coast Radio Impact Award. In the making of Help Wanted, Luke Malone was able to connect the researchers he spoke to with the young, non-offending pedophiles he featured in the story. Together, they're forming the first preventive treatment program in the U.S. After this program aired, hundreds of listeners wrote in, expressing their shock, surprise, and admiration for Adam and the way he's tried his best to negotiate his problem on his own and help others. Survivors of child sexual abuse also wrote in thanks for brave, solution-oriented reporting. 
Luke Malone, talked to us about the response he got to this story. It was overwhelmingly positive, and that was really, really lovely. And I've kind of said since then that a show like This American Life with a host like Ira Glass, people who listen to the show love Ira. And I think him kind of setting up the piece the way he did, it gave everybody a kind of everybody-be-cool vibe. And so I think that really helped situate the piece in a way that made people able to listen to it. Uh, but in terms of the specific feedback, I mean, I'd say like 95, 98% of it was very positive. That's not to say people weren't shocked and kind of maybe turned off by the topic at hand, but their responses in terms of, you know, them realising what we were trying to do, which is to show that these kids have this kind of affliction or have this orientation, whatever you'd like to call it, um, and they don't want it. And people for the first time were saying, oh, you know, I've thought about pedophilia in one very narrow term, and this kind of showed me another side of it, what it's actually like to be a young pedophile. Um, but my favourite ones, in terms of feedback, my favourite responses were people who were victims of child sexual abuse. And we ha I had many emails from people who had been victimised as a child, um, saying that whilst it was very hard for them to listen to, they were grateful that people were finally kind of tackling things from the area of prevention as opposed to kind of after the fact. How did Adam and his mom respond? Adam, um, as I kind of warned him in advance, I mean, I've been speaking to him at that stage for about a year and a half, almost two years, and I told him kind of midway through the process and also right before it went to air that you're not probably not going to like this from the get-go. The first time you listen to it, you're probably going to hate it. And he was actually quite upset when it first came out. I just kind of told him, look, this is what we spoke about. Just sit tight, listen to it one or two more times. And by his third listen, he really appreciated it, which is, which is great. Um, and I just anticipated that might happen. Um, in terms of his mother, I think we didn't speak about it too much after the fact, but she did kind of like the fact that we were tackling this and that basically her son had a platform to speak about what he was going through in, in such, and, and by a platform, I mean, such a major platform. And I think she was more kind of interested in that side of things. Adam's dad still doesn't know, right? Adam's dad doesn't know, no. Um, it was funny because I spoke to Adam's mum, yeah, like over a year after I was speaking to him and the other guys, and I was just, I was so used to being shocked that I was kind of unshockable in a sense. But when I started speaking to Adam's mum, I remember her saying that, I'm like, so who have you been speaking to about this? And she's like, oh, nobody. And I'm like, but, you know, your husband? She's like, no. I'm like, a therapist or friend? She's like, no. Um, but since the piece came out, they've been able to kind of have a bit more kind of deeper dialogue about what this means for Adam and how he's coping with it. And I think it's been really good for her. I mean, and kind of cathartic in a sense, um, to hold the secret to yourself is pretty intense. Um, and the fact that they can basically now talk to each other a bit more openly is kind of really great. When Luke accepted his Third Coast Award at our ceremony in Chicago, he pointed out some of the problems he faced reporting the story and more news about the story's impact. I just want to start by saying, when I first started to report this story, I went to see a um, law professor at Columbia for advice about how I should pursue a story like this from you know, a legal perspective, and he told me not to do it. He said it was going to ruin my career, and no one's going to want to hear a story um, defending pedophiles. So, mm -hmm, that um, <laughs> more important than our blood feud is the fact that um, he was wrong. People did want to listen to it, and... Um, we got so much amazing feedback, but kind of something a bit more concrete is that a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth Letourneau, who was the professor in the piece, told me, yeah, that she has had some people, some funders reaching out to ask her to apply for grants. We haven't got the money yet. Well, she hasn't got the money yet, I should say. But it's kind of a, it's a rarity, and it's like one step closer to having the first preventive pilot program for adolescent pedophiles. Um, because this radio piece had such a big impact, 
Um, she's going to be naming the first pilot program after the piece, Help Wanted, which is kind of cool. Luke Malone, winner of the 2014 Third Coast Radio Impact Award for his story, Help Wanted, which aired on This American Life. Luke is an Australian journalist living in New York whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, and The Daily Beast. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on the Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe or find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Coming up next, a profile of William Burroughs that's as surprising as its subject. And a man who writes a hundred songs every day. Not kidding. You should hear the one about mayonnaise. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Every year, the staff of the Third Coast Festival reserves an award for an audio documentary we find especially impressive. Maybe it's beautifully produced or wholly original in its storytelling. It could be a story that captures our imagination or just plain tickles our fancy. This year, it was so hard to choose just one story for this award that for the first time, we picked two. The first 2014 Director's Choice Award goes to Burroughs at 100. Worshipped by many, reviled by some, William Burroughs has been described as one of the greatest and most influential writers of the 20th century. He lived a life so outsized, his biography is nothing short of an epic, tragic tale of love, addiction, murder, genius, madness, and 1960s counterculture. In this intimate portrait of Burroughs' life, producer Colin McNulty shows us everything about Burroughs, warts, and all. We've never quite heard a profile like this one, narrated by the one and only Iggy Pop. Nobody seems to ask the question what words actually are and exactly their relationship to the human nervous system. A warning. The following program contains references to homosexuality, drug use, sex with aliens, violence, and kitty cats. What did you expect? That's good. <laughs> Iggy. Hey, how you doing? Good, how you doing? You were casing the joint. <laughs> I here was, here. sorry. <laughs> Not I, at all. I get lost. Well, and you were going to be punctual, right? Yeah, exactly. Sit Great. down, please, for a little bit. Okay, cool. Um, what are we doing? This is William Burroughs' 100th birthday, and uh, we're taking a look at his life his times, and his work. I didn't write this stuff, but I'm willing to present. All right? (laughs) I I really hope you put that line in there. I didn't write this stuff. I'm not that close to the take of BBC4, this whole thing, I'm going to be honest with you. Presenter to me, I feel like I should have a little hat. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for star time? (laughs) 
ready to rumble. That would, I could do those voices. At this particular time, we'd like to introduce the star of the show. Yeah, yeah. Colin McNulty. All right, let's go. Let's do it. You ready? I'm ready. Of course, Iggy Pop didn't just narrate the project. He threw in a good dollop of his own salty commentary. The Mythic Burroughs was an old man in a three-piece suit with this nasal voice rising up like this, railing against the world with one hand on the typewriter and the other pushing a needle into his arm. I could do him pretty good. <laughs> you could do a damn good Burroughs impression. I only shot heroin once in my life because I had to in respect of William Burroughs. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, but I did try it once. And you shouldn't because you can get hepatitis C from trying it just once. I don't have it, but I know people that do. William Burroughs was a bad influence on me, and I'm, I thank him for that. But not everyone appreciates the Burroughs myth. I, I don't just take the, the Burroughs myth with a pinch of salt. I view it as an unpleasant slug crawling across the lawn of, of literature, and I like to pour salt on it. The writer will self. Do you like his stuff? You said yes I to told you, you I yeah. did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Known smartass. <laughs> when I was at school, I, I got the uh, English prize when I was 16, and I asked for a copy of The Naked Lunch. I used to have it with the sort of school coat of arms on a book plate in the front of it. Um, having used heroin yourself... I, mean, I think used is a bit of an understatement. I was a heroin addict on and off for pushing a quarter of a century, so... <laughs> For myself, uh, I find the whole Burroughs myth pretty repulsive, actually, because I understand what happened to me. I was, uh, you know, an addict in waiting. You know, I got my form prize or my English prize of the Naked Lunch, and, and a year and a half later I was sticking needles in my arm. Was it that direct for you? Well, I'm not saying it made me do it. I'm saying that my attraction to Burroughs' work was very much to do with the mythos, and particularly to do with the sort of mythos that surrounded him because of being a heroin addict. And that's the point about Burroughs, is that he exists. You could be lying in some pestilential, piss-soaked squat in the bowels of the city, listening to some moron, totaled on drugs, drooling on, and talking about Burroughs because Burroughs was their Leon Trotsky. He was their Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the Pope. I'd rather belong to the priesthood than be with the guy who was lying on the carpet drooling about them. That's all. That's all there is to it, though. One day, Burroughs found himself in the possession of some morphine syringes, and he tried junk for the first time. Morphine hits the backs of the legs first, then the back of the neck. A spreading wave of relaxation, slackening the muscles away from the bones so that you seem to float without outlines. I became addicted to drugs before I'd written anything. And actually, my first book, Junkie, was simply an account of my experiences. I think it was medicine for the dude. It's painful. Yeah. It's painful to be a human being. Mm. I, I'm not even half anymore. I can't take it. Mm. You know, I've never been more than half at mm. one time. 
I think that, that his genius, in as much as he has any, and you see it in ample evidence uh, in, in Junkie, is that he makes of the condition of the addict uh, a synecdoche for the condition of everybody. There are all sorts of things you can get out of this guy's books mm. without having to be interested in whatever he thought about opiates. I think the way to read Junkie is not as a book about heroin addiction at all. It's a book about the condition of modern man under developed capitalistic societies. William was on and off junk for the rest of his life. His addiction followed and pushed him everywhere. Flash forward to Burroughs living in his New York home, The Bunker. Yeah, I saw Bill take junk. It almost seemed like someone had put a junk supermarket right smack in the middle of the punk world to destroy them. Writer and biographer Victor Bacris. Everyone had a copy of Junkie. They read them over and over again, but they didn't seem to get the real message of it because they seemed to think it was really cool to take heroin with William Burroughs. Uh, hi there. Colin, are we going to tape? James Grauerholtz was Burroughs' friend and manager for over 20 years. Every time I went to New York, I saw a slightly out-of-control scene Running the bank accounts, I could see it flowing out of the ATM down the street from the bunker. He he was looking for a pastoral retreat, and I was looking to lure him to it for his sake, to get him away from all the young wannabe hipsters ringing the buzzer of the bunker, breaking out the baggies of dope, and saying, hey, I brought you a gift, you know. It was a very constructive move and absolutely the right thing to do. At the time, of course, we were all really pissed off that Burroughs was leaving New York. But, but uh, God, he, he thrived in Kansas. He really thrived out there. Got him on methadone maintenance, and he remained on that till the end of his days. And it was very heightening for his productivity. And it needs to be difficult to see Burroughs. And it's not going to prevent people that deserve to see him from seeing him to make them come to Lawrence most times. After all, Voltaire lived 25 years in a tiny town of Fernay in Switzerland, and the crowned heads of Europe made their way to his estate. We'll leave Burroughs on his methadone program in Kansas for now. Okay, where next? Outer space! 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 It's good. Can you just say outer space? Outer space. That was an excerpt of Burroughs at 100, produced by Colin McNulty of Whistledown Productions for BBC Radio 4. To hear the entire story, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This year, we're thrilled to introduce a brand new award to the Third Coast Festival. It's called The Little Mermaid, created by Ira Glass of This American Life. Ira wrote, Now and then it occurs to me that some of my very favorite radio stories would never, ever win an award because they're not about anything big and serious and important. There's a whole class of stories I love hearing and love doing that really are just out for fun. These stories require just as much craft and thought and cunning as the big important stuff. Radio would be duller and sadder without them. Ira carefully selected two Little Mermaid winners this inaugural year. Chicago to Mexico by bus, about a direct bus trip from Chicago to Mexico that was anything but, and this story about a prolific songwriter. And when I say prolific, I mean prolific. And he's not one for hand-wringing and revising. This guy is all about volume. Here's PJ Vote with 100 songs in a day. 20% of the songs on Spotify have never been played. That's 4 million songs that have been so thoroughly orphaned that even their creators couldn't be bothered to play through them just once. There's a good chance that at least some of these were written by a guy named Matt Farley. Matt records in his basement in Danvers, Massachusetts. For work, he does two long shifts at a group home every week. And that lets him spend the other four days just writing songs. When his wife, Elizabeth, comes home from work, she'll sometimes just stand upstairs and eavesdrop. She likes to not tell me when she's coming home so that she can come home and hear, you know, honk, honk, honk goes the horn, beep, 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 honk your horn. And then, like, I hear footsteps. I'm like, are you home? She's like, I like your new song, and I'm totally embarrassed. Matt's clean cut and tall. He looks like he could model an airline neck pillow in a catalog. And his house is like any suburban house you've ever seen. Until you go down into that basement, which really is like a secret laboratory where he's inventing a million weird bands that are really just him churning out song after song after song. Since he started in 2008, he's recorded more than 14,000 songs. That's over 100 every day that he's writing, and that's 4,250 happy birthday songs. Hey, Alex. Hey there, Alex. Alex, Alex, Alex. It's your birthday. You probably knew that, Anne. You probably knew that, Anne. Cause after all, Anne, it's your birthday. Happy birthday, Guadalupe. Guadalupe, it's your birthday. Happy birthday, Guadalupe. Matt's latest album is about transportation. That's where that honk, honk, honk goes the horn, beep, beep, beep lyric comes from. This is not an album about problems with transportation or about something that happened while someone was transporting from one place to the other. It's an album about transportation, the noun. He lets me peek at his notes. Right, so this is just, it's a a notepad with every car, truck, motorcycle, tractor, trailer, camper van, minivan, van, bicycle, tricycle, train, subway, taxi cab. Matt has pages and pages filled with columns of song ideas. And by ideas, I mean words. Coming up, a little preview. Oh, the clothing album is going to be so good. Boots, (laughs) shoes, sneakers, high heels. 
the Body Parts album, foot, toes, ankle, big toe, pinky toe, middle toe, Achilles tendon. All right, so this is something you need to understand about Matt. All his life, Matt has made slightly arbitrary choices and then committed to them hard. Like in fifth grade, when his friends started swearing, he thought it'd be funnier to not swear. So he didn't, and he still won't. Or he really likes walking. So last year, he walked from his house in Danvers to the Boston Marathon, which means he basically walked the length of a marathon to just go watch a marathon. He also publishes a monthly newsletter about long walks, which is handwritten. When he does something, he does it big, including the music. So I have a band called the Toilet Bowl Cleaners, and um, there's eight albums of, of poop songs. You'd think I would run out, but the most recent one is like my pet sounds of, of poop songs. It's intense. It's beautiful. What's it called? It's called You Thought We Ran Out of Poop Song Ideas. You Were Wrong. <laughs> like, at first, it's just the poop song, you know, where I just sing the word poop. Poop! And that's a little frustrating because the poop song where I sing the word poop is the number one song. All I do is sing poop, 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 you know? And then there's others where I write what I consider to be good music and clever lyrics, and they do well enough, but it's like, geez. (laughs) But it's getting a little more abstract. You know, Poop Into a Wormhole is one of my favorite new tracks, and it's, it's fantastic. When you play a song on Spotify or on iTunes, the musician gets a tiny royalty. And a lot of them are angry about how bad the pay is. Matt's not. Matt's secret is that even if none of his songs are ever hits, he can still make half a living because there's just so many of them. And a lot of them are about things that people tend to search for online. So he's got kind of a song for everybody. Liberals love criminals, everybody knows. They love to help them get out on parole. That's a song by Matt's band, The Ultra Right Wing Conservatives. Big government is good. We need more programs. We need to hire more people to work for these programs. That, of course, is the extreme left wing liberals. Who's gonna be pitching last? The man with the great, great stash. The man they call the axe. John Axford. And that, of course, is from the Green Bay and Milwaukee Sports Band. Facial hair, and so they're unaware of strikes whizzing by them. My standard is if a song earns me $2 in a year, then I'm doing well. There's plenty of songs that make three cents a year, but, you know, it all averages out, and I'm up to 14000 so if it's if on average if you have fourteen thousand songs, are you making like twenty eight thousand dollars a year on on royalties? This year was twenty three thousand. You know, I'm hoping for twenty five, twenty six next year, which would be nice. That was an excerpt from One Hundred Songs in a Day, produced by PJ Vote and Alex Goldman for the podcast TLDR. It won one of this year's brand new The Little Mermaid Awards. And by the way, if you want to know how this award got its name, you can find a link to the story that inspired it and all the 2014 Third Coast Award winners at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But you can hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up, an ad on Craigslist, a swastika tattoo, 
and the unforgettable story of a man trying to erase his past. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. And now we've come to the 2014 Third Coast Bronze Award winner. Our judges said that this story is one of those rare pieces of radio that seems richer and fuller with every listen. It appears to be a small story, but in fact, there's a world of regret, heartbreak, and bad choices embedded in this moving and powerful piece. It's about a man who puts an ad on Craigslist to get help covering up a swastika tattoo on his left forearm. When a reporter sees the ad, calls him, and starts asking questions, he's forced to look back on a lifetime of bad choices. Here's the 2014 Third Coast Bronze Award winner, Leaving a Mark, by Emily Shaw. Hello. Hi, Hannah. Nothing. How you doing? Jesus, I haven't heard from you in a while. How you been? <laughs> Actually, I'm with this girl, Emily, right now that's interviewing me. She's a fucking college kid or something. She's, <laughs> she's interviewing me. I don't know. She does a radio thing or something. And she saw I have a ad in Craigslist about getting rid of the swastika tattoo I got. She wanted to know about that. So now. She's all curious about prison and shit. 24. I'm not doing that. What the fuck is wrong with you? I'm taking her home right now. Eventually, after you smoke, if we could close the window. Jesus Christ. Holy Is this going to be a trying experience? Uh, only if you make it a trying experience. I think it should be relatively painless. Relatively painless. Alrighty. Let's start with the basics. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm Bruce Roderick from Centerville. I was born in Provincetown. 1951 to Portuguese parents and I moved to Yarmouth in 1964 and what else keep going just start from the top what am I, what do you want me to say I, don't know. I thought what you were here like to look it? at my tattoo I have a small swastika tattoo on my left arm and I wish to have it covered up. I cannot afford to pay what a tattoo shop is charging. It is only in a one square inch area. Please, if you do tats on your own, call me or text me. I just want it covered up, blacked out, nothing fancy. I did it when I was younger and I wanted it off. I started using drugs when I was 15. 
summer kids coming down from New York and Provincetown. They'd be in little rich kids' private schools where they were already using drugs, and they'd bring that shit down. And the town kids would get around them, and we'd start using it, sniffing glue, smoking pot, taking pills, and then it just progressed to other things. I started using heroin, which I liked more than anything, and I just continued. Since that day, I've always done heroin. I don't do anything else. I dropped out of school when I was 16, worked a little bit, then I started getting in trouble and was a runaway, lived in the streets of Boston, and started going to prison when I was 17. What was that for? That was for a shooting and selling drugs. Summer of uh, 69, I believe, 69, yeah. I was gonna go to Woodstock, I got arrested that weekend. I received three years sentence, I made parole, I was out for a month, I went back in. And then I started, I started robbing drug dealers. Wow, what was robbing drug dealers like? How'd you do that? I would knock on a door, they would open the door, I'd put a gun in their face, go into the house and take the drugs. Have you ever killed anyone? No. Why would I sit here and admit to something like that anyway, if I did? Yeah, good question. Right? I, um, I was robbing drug dealers, and that was my career right up till 1985 when I went into a house. I went into a house in Centerville, and it was... Uh, police were in the house. They posed as drug dealers. And there was a confrontation in the house. I ended up going to prison for, uh, I spent 12 years in jail on that one. Then I got out again after uh, 12 years, went back in again for selling heroin. We got out, went back in again for selling heroin. Now I just got out again. Now here I am. I've been out two years, almost two years. This is the longest that I've been out here free and haven't been using. What's prison like? What's it like? Prison is very, is racial lines. There's lines. You have to hang with your own kind. And if you let a black or Spanish, or somebody that's not of your race, take advantage of you sexually or whatever, then you become a punk, I guess. You know, you want some gum? Which means anybody can take whatever they want from you because you just took up for yourself. You're fair game. I think I even got some pictures here. Pictures from prison? Yeah, I got a couple, I think. That's me when I was younger. That's a jailbird. It's my niece, my niece. That's me in a bar in Boston. Where's the jail pictures at? That's my father. That's me in my mother's house. That's me down the keys. My parents were devastated. No one in my family's ever gotten in trouble before. 
but it always stuck by me. Do you think your parents should have practiced tougher love or? What, beat me more? <laughs> What's well, tough love? They didn't say, here, yeah, here, yeah. here's 20 bucks, go get high, no. My father was disgusted by my behavior. My mother was heartbroken, that was my mother's favorite. Of course not, they didn't want me to do the things I did. Well, you know, what are you gonna do? You don't think of nothing else but yourself when you're doing those things you do. This is Norfolk prison here. That's me there. That's one of my good friends. He's a dope friend. This guy I hung around with for like 10 years, right? And he was like my best friend, and I didn't know he was in for rape. After I found that out, he was... He didn't exist. You don't want to be with rapists, child molesters, people that do crimes against the elderly, people that abuse their kids, stuff like that. White guys, we do not take them people in. We have morals. The guys I hang with have morals. We don't take in scum, you know? And that's prison. Whoa. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to your tattoo yet. I've just been so enthralled. That's the tattoo. See it? It's not even that big. You can barely even see it. Yeah, I got it done around 1986, 87. It was supposed to have, like, white power. I was covering up a question mark I had right there when I was a kid. And this guy, Willie the Rat, he did a lot of my tattoos. And um, I think he was in my cell doing a tattoo for somebody else. And I had some biker book or something. And I saw that tattoo and I asked Willie if he could cover the question mark up with that. And I put that on. And now I want this covered up. That's all I want is that blacked out. Did your buddies get swastikas as well? Oh, yeah. Most of the white guys back then had swastikas. Swastikas, uh... SWP, Supreme White Power, uh, FTW, a lot of them at that age, you know, the big one, fuck the world. Did it, the swastika represent Nazi ideas in prison? No, did it doesn't it? represent nothing, it's just a fucking tattoo. I don't have anything against Jewish people. But that symbol, the swastika, says otherwise, right? The swastika was just a symbol, period. What does it mean to you? I like the way it looks. I used to have a big flag. Above my wall, I had a big swastika flag. I gave it to my roommate up in Revere before I moved out. But you know that it carries so many connotations. That's exactly why I'm taking it off my own. I read an obituary about this Jewish guy that was in the camps. And this guy worked in the uh, gas chambers, the showers. They would take the bodies out of the shower and bring them to be burned. This guy, that was his job. That's why he was able to survive. He was in there towards the end of the war. But anyway, he just died recently. And in his obituary, it said he had written this book and um, I read the book, and then I just didn't want the tattoo anymore. 
because it's a very offensive thing, and I am getting old, and I don't want to die and have God see that on my arm. I spent over 30 years in prison. I'd like to have those years back. I never had any kids. I, uh, my mother and father were both dead. They never saw me uh, succeed in nothing. Uh, I'm 61, I don't have shit for money. You know, all of a sudden I woke up and I was 60 years old. It just flew by, the time flew right by. All behind drugs. That's it. Are we done? Yeah, we are. We are? <laughs> Basically, yeah. I'm sorry. But where are you going? Where do you have to go? I'll give you a ride, I'm saying. Okay. This oh, interview is over. I'm sorry. That's okay. Did it go all right? Yeah. We got to defrost. All right. What did you think, that dirty racist? I didn't know. What do you think now? Still that dirty races? You still got that fucking thing on? Yeah. <laughs> I do. Patience on my Thanks, Bruce. Fun. Take care. Better say I'm a nice fucking guy in this. Alrighty, thank you so much. What's up, Shot Dog? Why the fuck didn't you go pick up Charlie that day? He is some fucking pissed. Leaving a Mark was produced by Emily Shaw for the Transom Story Workshop and is the winner of the 2014 Third Coast Bronze Award. In the end, Bruce Roderick did find someone to cover up his tattoo, and he's still clean and sober. Emily is an independent producer based in Brooklyn who says she dreams of creating an embroidered audio comic book. If you want an idea of what her handiwork looks like, check out our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Voices are just like faces in that they reflect a lifetime of experience. There are audio equivalents to wrinkles and scars and laugh lines. You can hear them in the honeyed timbre, the whiskeyed tones, or the notes of vinegar in someone's speech. Each voice has its own constellation of features, and careful listeners hear it all. We know that you are one of them and we're thrilled to bring you an hour that scrambles scratch with smooth and smoky with silk. We hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Gwen Maxi, and as usual, many thanks for joining us. One note before the credits roll. We couldn't possibly squeeze all of the Third Coast winners into this hour, but they are available for you to listen to and cherish whenever you'd like. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. 
The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Annie Kostakis and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The managing director is Sarah Geis. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Go. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email, or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.